From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I've been a cop for 35 years. I'm certainly not a naive person. But I, I do know that uh, most people become cops because they want to make a difference. And not all 36,000 cops are good. And all, I, wherever I go, I say that. We are going to have issues. We are going to have people that do things that are not right, that commit crimes. And we'll take care of that. That's Jimmy O'Neill. Since 2016, he's been the commissioner of the NYPD, the New York City Police Department. We go deep on lots of issues like community policing, terrorism, and guns in schools. That's coming up. But first, your questions. Hi, Preet. This is Tom from Redmond, Washington. And my question is about the House Intelligence Committee and the fact that they're wrapping up the uh, investigation. And do you think that if the House is turned to the Democrats in the November, that some of these witnesses will be called back? Love your show. Look forward to the answer. Thanks. Tom, that's a great question. Before I address what may happen in the future if the House changes hands, I have a couple of reactions to Devin Nunes' conduct. First, I think one of the most important things to remember about the Intelligence Committee that Adam Schiff talked about when he was on the show last week is that it has historically been a bipartisan committee because the issues that they have to deal with are important to Americans, whether you're on the left, on the right, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. That's been true for a long time in both the Senate Intel Committee and the House Intel Committee. But everything about the way that Devin Nunes has apparently run the committee, particularly with respect to the Russia investigation, has been one-sided, has not involved outreach to the Democratic side, whether you're talking about the memo that seems to have been coordinated with the White House or the total shutdown of the investigation, even though many witnesses have not come before the committee, the witnesses who have come before the committee haven't answered all the questions, and there seems to be a lot of work yet to be done. And by the way, I just want to make clear, this is not a comment about Republicans and Democrats. There's Mike Rogers, who used to be the Republican chair of the committee, the Intel Committee, I think was widely respected and reached out to the other side and tried to do things in a bipartisan way, like is currently happening on the Senate side. So the House Republicans may have decided to shut down the investigation, but that is at odds with what's going on elsewhere, most notably on the Senate side, which continues to look at these issues, and most importantly, by Bob Mueller himself. And the definitive, I think, announcement, declaration, review of what did or did not happen in connection with Russian meddling in the election and whether or not anyone in the Trump campaign was involved with it is going to come from Bob Mueller. Now, you know, it's hard to speculate about something so far in the future. First, it's unclear if the House will change hands. There was an election this week where somebody won Pennsylvania's 18th district, uh, Connor Lamb. It seems to me that it's certainly possible that the Democrats could revive the investigation. I mean, Schiff has said, by the way, very clearly, that the minority is continuing to look at these issues. Obviously, they are hampered a little bit and hamstrung because they don't have subpoena power because they have to vote and get a majority vote to issue subpoenas. But there are still interviews they can do on a voluntary basis. There are documents that they can review. There are reports and analyses that they can issue. But as we've seen with this administration, much time has gone by with respect to lots of things that Hillary Clinton did and that people in the Obama administration did. And those investigations get revived. I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing, but it's possible that the House Democrats, if they are in charge, come back to it. But I think it may not be necessary, as Adam Schiff himself has said, if there is a definitive accounting from Bob Mueller or some other kind of accounting from the Senate committee. But if there remain questions unanswered and there remain issues unresolved, I think it's a good bet, actually, that Adam Schiff, if he becomes the chair of the Intel Committee next year, will be taking a look.
Our next question is an email from Andrea Graves from San Diego. She writes, Hi, Preet. My question is about Stormy Daniels' exclusive story with a tabloid. Since she agreed to an exclusive arrangement and was paid for that exclusivity, doesn't that prevent her from speaking out on her relationship with Trump, even though the NDA doesn't seem to be valid? Well, there's a lot of questions there, and I did not expect when I started this podcast that we would be talking about a porn actress named Stormy Daniels, but, you know, I guess there's a lot of surprises in the last year. So I don't know the details of her arrangement with a tabloid. I don't know ultimately whether or not the the NDA, the non-disclosure agreement, is going to be held valid or not. There's litigation with respect to it that's going on in California, as I understand. There's a question of whether or not the president of the United States was supposed to sign it, whether under a pseudonym or not, and he appears not to have signed it. It does look from my outsider position, Donald Trump's lawyers have not done a particularly excellent job of representing him with respect to trying to keep this secret. In their defense, a little bit, I would say, there's kind of a catch-22 situation where a lawyer is trying to prevent something from becoming known, trying to keep something secret, but then on the other hand, wants to document in a way that's enforceable later in court an agreement on the part of the other person who knows the secret to keep it hidden. So you see there's damned if you do, damned if you don't. I still think, although I've not been a contract lawyer for a very, very long time, that there might have been a better way for them to do it. But I think the really important question is going to be going forward for the president is not whether he did or did not have an affair with somebody, but what his knowledge was and what his direction was with respect to making a payoff to this person in the days before the election. I don't think that's criminal conduct, but it does implicate federal election law, and there's an open question about whether or not there's anyone in a position to enforce a violation of election law. But so far, I will say the thing that's most outrageous to me is the suggestion on the part of Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's proud personal lawyer, that he on his own paid $130,000 in hush money and did not get reimbursed by anyone, was not directed by anyone. You know, I know a lot of lawyers who are good people and who are generous, but I don't know any lawyer who on his own does this sort of thing on behalf of a client to the tune of $130,000. There's also the question of whether or not it's ethical to engage in some kind of representation on the part of the beneficiary who would have been Donald Trump. Donald Trump was trying to get elected president. Clearly, it was in his interest for this information not to come out on the eve of the election. And so it seems to me that ethically, the lawyer would have to have consulted Donald Trump. It's just another example of an insult to our intelligence that the suggestion is made that Donald Trump had nothing to do with it. I joked on Twitter last weekend that I have a personal lawyer who from time to time, without asking me, will just pay off my mortgage. I'm a lucky guy. You know what? That doesn't happen. Hi, Preet. This is Katie from Oklahoma City. I'm hearing a lot about Kellyanne Conway violating the Hatch Act with what she said about the Alabama special election for the Senate seat. But that makes me wonder about all the previous lame duck presidents that have gone campaigning for who they hope to replace them after the election. And that also seems like they're using their official office to sway elections. So I'm just wondering what the difference is between the two. Love the show. Thanks. Uh, That's a great question. So the Hatch Act tries to get at an issue of whether or not people who are in office are using their office resources, their office email account, um, their office staff, who are supposed to be working on policy on behalf of every American, and instead diverting some of that to work on behalf of a particular political candidate. During my time in the Senate, for example, Every senator there was both a legislator, but then also a politician who would raise money for his or her campaign. All of that campaigning, all those phone calls, all the emails, all the letter writing 
had to be done outside of the office of the Hart Senate building where I used to work. Now, some may say that's a silly distinction, but it is an important one. It's a lawful one, and it has to be observed very strictly. And it appears that Kellyanne Conway has run afoul of that, not once, but multiple times. And it goes to a larger question, I think, of ethics in the Trump administration. You have all sorts of people who have not untied their arrangements financially, including members of his family. You have Donald Trump, who seems to be profiting from what's happening in his hotels. You know, there used to be a time when the ethics offices at these various institutions were extremely strict. I mean, I remember being told when I was the United States attorney that I literally could not teach at my alma mater at Columbia Law School pro bono without being paid because they thought it was too much of a conflict of interest with a university. It's incredibly important both for actual conflict reasons and for appearance reasons for people who are supposed to be serving the entire public not to look like they have some private self-interest. That's not being taken seriously by anyone, and I think that's in part the case because the person at the top doesn't seem to take it seriously at all. One last question this week is about reports suggesting that President Trump was thinking about adding a new lawyer to his team to deal with the Mueller investigation, and that lawyer's name is Emmett Flood. So Twitter user Sandra Bender asks, why would he take the job? Before I answer that, let me say why I think Donald Trump might want him to take the job. Emmett Flood has had a varied experience in Washington. He has an excellent background in the law. He served on Bill Clinton's impeachment team, meaning on Bill Clinton's side. He also served in the White House Counsel's Office under George W. Bush. So he's done a lot of work at a high level in high-profile matters on the Democratic side and the Republican side. He's a top-notch lawyer, as I said on Twitter this past week. And so he might find himself out of place on the Trump personal lawyer team, who I think it is a not particularly controversial thing to say, has not exactly been top-notch. So that's why I think President Trump would be wise, from his perspective, to add someone of Emmett Flood's caliber to his team. Now, the question as to why he would take the job, well, ordinarily, in the world, there's no more highly prestigious appointment than serving your country by serving the President of the United States. He actually did this once upon a time, as I said, for President Bill Clinton, who was someone of the opposing party. But as a lot of people have said, serving this particular president in a certain capacity is not necessarily good for your career. Some of this has been remarked upon in newspaper stories and in uh, TV reports that there are a lot of really smart, capable Republican lawyers who refuse to serve. I can tell you from personal experience, I know a lot of lawyers who were top-notch, great, full of integrity, really smart, who worked in Republican administrations. Some of them have been asked to come back into the Trump administration, and they were refused and have told me that they wouldn't come back because they think it would be harmful to their reputations, and they think that the president wouldn't listen to them anyway, so what's the point? And look, people are smart, and they pay attention, and they see how the president of the United States treats high-level people who he hires with great fanfare. Like Rex Tillerson, for example, this week was fired by tweet, and you see the way in which the president treats Another very important lawyer, the Attorney General of the United States, humiliates him, publicly disparages him. You know, you want to be careful about what you're getting into if you begin to serve this president. And then second, as a lawyer, it is not a fun or professionally rewarding experience to work even in a high-profile matter for somebody who's the leader of the free world if you know going in that that person is not going to take your advice. It is a frustrating experience, to say the least, if the reason you're being brought in is to provide wise counsel, and you tell your client one thing, in this case it would be the president, and the next day he throws it out the window, 
and does something different. Uh, lawyers typically will walk away from a client like that. Why his lawyers have not and stay on while Donald Trump hurts himself, his cause, his potential case by tweeting out things and by mistreating people in a public and unfortunate way, I don't know. But at the end of the day, it remains to be seen. We see lots of stories about who the president is interviewing, who he's thinking about for various positions, who turns him down, who doesn't. It, it's all unclear and it's a bit of a fog about all these issues, but we'll see. Before we get to the interview, I want to just make something 100% clear from last week's show. I talked a little bit about Sam Nunberg, the former Trump advisor, who last week went on something of a spree of television interviews and said a lot of different things. And I was pointing out how he might be unreliable as a witness for Bob Mueller, and you wouldn't expect to see him as a star witness at any point. And in ticking off a bunch of different things, I mentioned that he was on antidepressants, and I'm thankful that we have lots of lots of very thoughtful listeners, a couple of whom pointed out that it sounded like I was saying that the reason he would be unreliable is that he was on antidepressants. And I want to be 100% clear, that's not what I was saying, that's not what I meant, that's not what I think. I was talking about the totality of Nunberg's behavior, his defiance of Mueller, his lack of discretion, his flip-flopping on cooperation, all his contradictory statements that would make him, in the eyes of any reasonable prosecutor, an unreliable future witness. So I just wanted to clear that up. My guest this week is New York City Police Commissioner Jimmy O'Neill. We talk about a lot of things, terrorism, school safety, and also something called Comstat. It's a data-driven crime-fighting strategy that has yielded a lot of good results for New York City. Commissioner O'Neill is coming up. Stay tuned. Commissioner O'Neill, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Preet. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. So I was present at your swearing-in, which was about a year and a half ago. And your first day on the job was an interesting day. Why is that? Well, it was uh, September 17th. Got unofficially sworn in the day before on the 16th by the mayor. And the 17th was the Chelsea bombing. I had so you're worked. literally getting the reins of the New York City Police Department handed to you. And there's an operational terrorist in New York City. Yep. I was, uh, I had worked all day, moved from the 13th floor to the 14th floor. I kind of thought as commissioner, you'd have people to do that, but moved myself with a few other people and I was driving and I got a phone call from, uh, Sergeant Dan Shelley and, uh, the initial reports, I don't know if you know this, the initial report was that a bus blew up on 23rd street. No, I don't remember that. Yeah. Yep. That was, uh, the initial report turned around, came into work, taken aback a little bit, but then I got myself together and thought about uh, all my years' experience and all the people that I work with, and uh, I knew we'd get to the bottom of it and, and do what we did. It was a pretty, pretty amazing day. My recollection is that Rahimi, who was the person who, who detonated the, the pressure cooker bomb, was actually captured while you were on stage taking the oath. And I saw that that happened, and I kept looking up at the stage to see someone telling the new commissioner that the guy's in custody. Did someone tell you? Because I didn't see you look at a phone. Yeah, no, I did, I did not look at my phone, but in the middle of the swearing-in ceremony, I don't know who was speaking, whether it was the mayor or, or Carlos, somebody handed me a note. What did the note say? What did the note say? That the Rahimi was in custody. 
<laughs> kind of kind of crazy because as we were walking up to the stage, I said jokingly to John Miller, I said, hey, John, could you make sure you get this guy in custody before the end of the ceremony? Because <laughs> right. we have a press conference after this. And then in the middle of the ceremony, they handed me a note saying he was in custody. And Rahimi, as, as you know better than I, got sentenced to two consecutive life terms recently for his conduct on that day, as he should have been. But can I ask you a more a personal question, putting aside that you were diverted in focus because of this, you know, important violent act that had happened in New York City. You've been a cop in some capacity or another for 35 years, 36 years? Yeah, I just hit 35 on January 5th. So you're a person on the line at all sorts of different opportunities at the police department, including as a transit officer at one point. And now you're going to lead up, you know, some would say, I would say, the best police force in the world. How'd you feel personally about that? And the reason I ask is, you know, I had a somewhat analogous experience. You know, I'd worked on the line as a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. And when I tried to get my arms around the fact that I was going to be you know, the U.S. Attorney, it was a bit overwhelming. How was it for you? So I, I came on the job as a transit cop back in 1983. And uh, I'm an ambitious person, but I don't think overly ambitious. I, I always want to do well at the job I'm presently in. And I figured at some point, if I could make captain or, or deputy inspector, I thought it would be a success. I had the opportunity in 1990 to work for Bill Bratton when he was the chief of the transit police. Then I worked for him again in 94 when he became the commissioner. And then in 2014, 18 years after he left in 96, he came back. And I was a one-star chief at the time running the Fugitive Enforcement Division. So did I ever foresee myself as the commissioner of the NYPD? Uh, absolutely not. But uh, having the opportunity to work with Bill for uh, the time he was here uh, from 14 to uh, the day I took over was, was really, for me, it was a, a transformational experience. Uh, it's a guy that uh, absolutely has such a broad view of not just policing, but just of, of life in big cities. So I think working with him, when they, Mayor de Blasio told me I was getting the job, it made me somewhat comfortable. <laughs> okay. But Did you get goosebumps? Uh, did you did you cry? Did you celebrate? I need something human here from you. Yeah, I, I didn't cry. I, I, I didn't cry. I, I think I was overwhelmed. Sure, because being number two and then as chief department, you're number two. A lot of responsibility, a lot of things going on, but it's not being number one. Number one, it all falls on your shoulders. I believe it or not, we have listeners all over the country and all over the world, and many people may not be fully familiar with the NYPD. So, can I just ask you some basic questions yeah, sure. about? Yep. How large is the NYPD? There's uh, 36,000 police officers, uniformed members of the service. That's police officers, sergeants, lieutenants, all the way up to one-star chief. And then there's 18,000 uh, civilian employees, with the brunt of them being school safety officers. There's 5,000 school safety officers and then uh, 4,000 traffic agents. And how does 36,000 compare historically as to size? Uh, we're, at, we're at our peak back in 2000, right before 9-11. We're at 41,000. And we have fewer people than we had yeah. after 9-11? Yeah, what, it does went that down, make sense? It was, uh, there were some tight budget years. We went actually went down to 34,000 police officers. And then uh, about two years ago, the mayor and city council approved uh, an increase of uh, 1,300 uniforms, plus they create 700 civilian positions. So we actually increased our patrol strength by 2,000 cops. So, okay. Yeah. Among the 36,000 uniformed cops, men versus women? Oh, we're 17.5% uh, female. In the police department. How does that compare nationally? 
we're in pretty good shape. Yeah. Uh, we are probably one of the most diverse police departments in, in the country. The demographics don't match exactly to the diversity of the city, but it's uh, pretty darn close, especially at the police officer level. And we just had a sergeant's test a couple of months ago, and we had got the results, and the diversity numbers look really, really good. The police officer level, I think it's uh, 49. We're actually a majority-minority police department. What kind of training do cops get? You get six months in the police academy. All sorts of different subjects, mm-hmm. tactics, firearms, police science, how to deal with emotionally disturbed people. It's just the, the curriculum is pretty pretty broad. But then after you get out of the police academy, you do six months in a precinct or a transit district or a housing police service area in the field training program. So two recruits, when they get out of the academy, are assigned to one field training officer. You go around the clock. You do two months of midnights. You do two months of day tours. You need to do two months of uh, 4 to 12, so the afternoon shift. That's important. This way you get to see the, mm-hmm. the whole precinct, how it operates. What are the qualifications necessary to become a cop? You have to have uh, 60 credits, college credits. There's physical and medical requirements. There's the entry-level test that you have to pass. And then once you pass that test, you get assigned an investigator to do a complete background investigation on you. Then you start going through the, the medical and psychological testing and physical testing to eventually end up in a NYPD. It's for every 10 people that take the test, we uh, hire one person. What kind of psychological testing? It's pretty extensive. It's a written psychological test, and there's an oral with a psychologist. Yeah, I mean, I don't think many people know about that. Uh, yeah. And what's the point of that, to make sure that you don't, you don't have somebody wielding a gun that shouldn't? It's not only just carrying a firearm. There's so many different things that a police officer do. We have to make sure that we're hiring stable individuals. How often last year did NYPD officers fire their weapons? In adversarial situations, that's uh, you know a police officer being uh, with deadly physical force being used against him or her and uh, or against another person uh, twenty three times. Twenty three times. That's it. Times twenty three. And thirty six thousand officers. Right. And in nine, in two thousand and sixteen, it was thirty seven. What else would a police officer fire the weapon <laughs> if not an uh, adversarial? Yeah. No, there's there's there's, 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 a, there's dogs. You know, there's there are dog shootings. Unfortunately, there are suicides. There's accidental discharges. Those numbers are down to, I think the total number was in the 60s. When you tell people that the number of times that an officer fired a weapon throughout the entire department is something like 23, are they surprised? Yeah. I don't have the exact numbers on rates in other police departments, but we have a very low, low rate of uh, firearms discharge. And each and every officer-involved shooting is fully investigated by our force investigation division and in conjunction with the local district attorney's offices. How many homicides were committed in New York City last year. In 2017, we had 292 homicides. You got to take a look at uh, 1990, which was the peak year for New York City. How many was that? It was uh, 2245. That's a big drop. Yeah. People have been talking about it for a long time. So I want to talk about that for a minute. And there are a lot of theories that circulate about why New York has such a low homicide rate and why crime rates continue to go down, even though some people in other parts of the country uh, are experiencing something slightly different. Is New York just better? Is it, are the cops just better? Are the people less violent? Are people aged out of the demographic of being violent? I mean, what, what yeah. do you think is the reason? Uh, I think that there's probably a number of reasons, but I think the most important reason is that, you know, we started doing this in 1992 when Mayor Dinkins hired an additional 7,000 cops. And then uh, Mayor Giuliani came in and, and hired Bill Bratton in 1994. From 94 to the present, we have a system of accountability the NYPD that makes precinct commanders accountable for uh, 
not just the cops that work in their command, but uh, to the whole community, to the whole precinct. I mean, they're, they're accountable for the crime that happens in their yeah, absolutely. watch. Absolutely. There's got to be that accountability. And we have a system called CompStat. I'm sure people have heard about it. Yeah. Why, I was going to ask you about that. Why, explain CompStat as an unbelievable, I guess you would call it a tool or an approach to policing that's statistic-based, relies on science, relies on accountability. Why don't you explain sure. for a minute what CompStat is? Sure. I actually ran CompStat when I was chief of department for uh, two years from November of 14 until September of 16. So every Thursday morning, mostly, sometimes it's on Fridays at uh, 8 o'clock, uh, we have a weekly crime strategy meeting called CompStat. It started back in 90, 1994, and it's really evolved as uh, many iterations of CompStat. So if I work in a patrol borough in a precinct and uh, my crime is up, or the crime is up in the patrol borough. You hear about it. You hear about it, and then you get invited to come down to one police plaza. Invited. Yeah, yeah, like uh, summoned. Nice. Yeah, that's right, it. Right, get, right. I was the precinct commander in uh, Central Park Precinct for two years, the 2-5, which is in East Harlem, for two years, and then in the 4-4 Precinct for about two and a half years. So I have that precinct commander experience. So if your crime or violence is up, uh, the whole borough comes down, you stand up there at a podium with uh, the people that you work with, uh, precinct detective, lieutenant, narco commander, the vice commander, the gang commander, and you let people know what's going on, you know, what the crime is, what, what, where the increases are. But most importantly, you get the opportunity to explain what your strategy is to make sure that you control crime, especially violence, homicides, and shootings. You also have people who are just focused on sort of intel on the ground. At every precinct, right? Right. We have a field intelligence officer right. And their job to... is they don't make, you know, routine collars or, you know, pound the pavement to try to investigate particular cases. They're there to sort of get a general sense of what the hell is going on in the precinct, right? Right. And it's important as people are processed through the precinct that the, the FIOs, the field intelligence officers, have the opportunity to, to debrief people as they come through the system. I mean, you're not going to, obviously, you're not going to talk about that specific crime that they're arrested for. You can uh, talk about uh, what's going on around them. And to solve other it, crimes. Right, to solve other crimes. Right. Because every time, you know, I don't know if people fully appreciate this, every time you arrest someone who's been involved in some crime, they probably have information about 10, 20, 30 others. Yeah. And yeah. you want to exploit that. Right. And, and it's, it's a real skill uh, to be able to do that, to be able to uh, talk to people and, and get them to give you the information so you can help solve other crimes. What makes someone good at that job? I think uh, there's a couple of things. I think your communication ability is important, but it's also your experience and having a very good knowledge of the precinct where you work. I worked in the 4-4, which is in the, the South Bronx in the area around Yankee Stadium. And I had a, an FIO there that had worked there for a number of years before I got there, had an intimate knowledge of not only where the issues were, but uh, who the players were and where the violence might come from. So take us through it. Let's say there's a spike in shootings or robbers, you know, some aspect of crime goes up in some part of Brooklyn, Bronx, Manhattan, wherever. What happens? All right, so I'm going to use my old precinct as, as, as an example. Say in the 44th precinct, if I have a spike in shooting in and around Mount Eden Avenue in, in Townsend, a shooting happens uh, or a homicide happens, detectives go in there and obviously they respond to it and then they interview people and they'll do a background check on the, on the, everybody involved. They'll uh, take a look at the history of the person that was shot, see if they belong to a gang or crew. If they belong to a gang or crew, the uh, investigation can, can actually expand. Once that happens, we can go in there. If more information is needed, 
We can go in there, send send narcotics teams in there if it's narco related. When you say send them in there, is that for the purpose of investigating or sort of to be present and deter people by a show of force? Ideally, it should happen both ways, right? right? It should happen both ways. It should go in there if the the, uh, shooting is narco related. We'll go in there, we'll send a narcotics team in there, they'll do buy and bust, and then the FAOs and the detectives from NARC will have the opportunity to debrief the people that they lock up and maybe get some information about why the shooting occurred, who did the shooting. There's a lot of technology involved now, too. There are cameras. Uh, this, is, this is part of 2018. They're an important part of what we do. It helps us solve a lot of crimes. Do you have any regrets about the loss of privacy people have? Yeah, I mean, there's always, we always have to strike that balance. I, I know what the arguments are. But, you know, when it comes to violence, I think it's important that we have use all resources available to stop that violence. Just further to the question about why New York has done so well with respect to violent crime. Other cities are not faring so well. Uh, Chicago, Baltimore in particular. I love Chicago. I'm going there soon. My in-laws are there. Wonderful city. But I was looking at the stats very recently prepared for this interview. And New York City has depending on what stats you look at, one-seventh or one-eighth the number of homicides per capita at Chicago. Do you have any theories? Yeah, I do. And again, it goes back to we've been doing this since 1994. You know, we've been uh, working on this issue of homicides and shootings. But don't you think Chicago has crime? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if they've, they've used the Comstat system over that period of time. Was anybody called uh, and said, hey, can we shut up? Yeah, actually, actually uh, you know, I, I belong to major city chiefs I uh, belong to the Police Executive Research Forum. We have conferences all throughout the year. We share information. The uh, command staff from Chicago has come into New York City a few times. They've sat at Comstat. They see what we do. You know, I'm not overly familiar with the uh, the demographics or of uh, the <clears throat> geography, mostly the geography yeah. of You have a full-time job. Yeah. yeah. But any thoughts about Baltimore? Where, where I think the homicide rate is even higher. Yeah. And again, it's it's the same situation. The way we approach our work. And a big part of this is, and and something that I've found out going to these conferences, the relationships that we have with our local prosecutors, the Southern District, the Eastern District, the FBI, the DEA, the Marshal Service. You talk a lot. Not just talk a lot. We work together a lot. I mean, if you look at after Randolph Holder was killed on in East River Houses in uh, 2015, in October 2015, you know, look what we managed to accomplish. And that wasn't the NYPD by ourselves. It was NYPD, the FBI, the Southern District. And we made life a whole lot better for, for the people that yeah. live in East River, East River Houses. And I think that that's a big difference, too. When I was a line prosecutor, a lot of the people we worked with were cops, even though we're, you know, a federal prosecutor's office, in part because there were all these task forces. I mean, I did narcotics cases, and there were joint you know, DEA, NYPD task forces. And I did a lot of my work with detectives in the NYPD. And obviously the Joint Terrorism Task Force is a collection of people from lots of different agencies, but, you know, a huge presence by NYPD and obviously also the FBI. Do you think cities are different though in some ways? In other words, if if we picked you up and put you in another city that had a worse violent crime problem, would you expect to do all the things that you do in New York? Or do you think there's just something different about yeah. the feel of a, of a different city. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I can answer that. I do know that is another advantage of growing up in the system of uh, NYPD. You know how it all works. Yeah, um, uh, and not only do I know how it all works, I have relationships with people over the, all over the city, 
and not just you know people in law enforcement, with electeds, with community members, with tenant associations, with business associations. I think that's a big part of uh, helping to reduce crime. We've embarked almost three years ago, which I find hard to believe, on neighborhood policing, which is a different model of policing than the precinct and uh, housing PSA level. And we're going to actually going to move it over to transit soon, too, where we put the same cops in the same sectors every day. We have a position called the neighborhood coordination officer. There's two per sector. And what their job is to be the conduit between the community and the, and the steady sector cops. This way we can identify problems together, work out solutions together. I think what that, that does three things. It makes the cops feel good about what they do. And uh, you have to, everybody's got to admit that uh, law enforcement has not been shown in the best light over the last three or four years. Neighborhood policing makes the community feel that uh, policing is something that's done with them, not to them. And if that's those two things are done correctly, you're going to see a drop in overall crime. Describe what you mean by community policing, because I think it's, a, it's an important issue these days. So this is what, again, I'm going to go back to the 4-4 precinct, which is, for me, was a, was a transformational two and a half years. That is a, a precinct right around Yankee Stadium. It's 1.9 square miles. There's 150,000 people that live in that 1.9 square miles. Prior to neighborhood policing, the 404 was 18 different sectors, and the line's kind of drawn arbitrarily. If you're a cop in the 404, you're not necessarily working in the same sector every day. With neighborhood policing, we went from 18 sectors down to five sectors, and those sectors now represent natural neighborhoods. We have Concourse Village. We have so uh, they're, not, they're not gerrymandered. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not. It, a, it's a geographic neighborhood. Right. And what we do is we put the same police officers, whether you're on a 4 to 12 uh, midnight shift or a day tour shift, you're working in that sector every day. And that's a priority that you stay in that sector. And the reason, it, it's, you get to know everybody. Correct. And they get to know you. Right. And is that we, always good? It is. And I, I think I know what you're driving at. Uh, we have a, a very robust uh, system where we're looking for uh, corruption all the time. Yeah. And then we have the, in those sectors, we have two neighborhood coordination officers. I think it's important that we we lean towards this method of policing. I know there are some some challenges with it, but I think the people in the city really need to get to know the cops that serve them and understand why they do it and, and just to see them as, as, as fellow human beings and how much they care about this city. It, it, the theory being that if you got to know your cop, you would like your cop. Yeah, it is. And, and you would get to understand who they are. And the biggest part of this neighborhood policing philosophy is that instead of going, instead of answering 911 jobs all day long, because prior to neighborhood policing, if I'm a cop in a 4-4, one radio car, one police car could be handling 20 to 25 uh, radio runs on an eight-hour shift. So in that model, there's no chance you're going to ever meet anybody. But are you telling beat cops to do things other than the traditional job? I mean, are they going, are they going to picnics? Are they going to school events? Are they getting involved in the community? In, in deeper ways yeah. than just, right? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know about going to picnics, okay. but... Uh, we don't, pick, are, we don't right. picnic in New York City anyway. <laughs> they, are, they are going to schools. Yeah. They're going to community but is that meetings. part, do, do you tell them to... Yeah. You tell them, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We put enough police officers into that precinct now where they have a third of their day where they're not chasing 911 jobs. They have time to do other things. They have time to go to meetings. Not just about going to meetings. It's not just about making connections. There's a lot of other things they have to do in that one third of their day where they're not answering radio runs. There's still quality of life conditions. There's still traffic conditions, wellness visits, which is, it's an important component. And people get to see that. Uh, What's that? A wellness, say if uh, we get a 
an incident where uh, somebody's sick and get taken to the hospital, and then we find out they're released from the hospital. We'll go back a couple of days later just to check follow up, up. On, yeah, do some follow yeah. up. Somebody's a victim of a crime, and we have an elderly that's a victim of a robbery. We'll go back a couple of days later to make sure that they're okay, and if there's anything else that they need, it makes the cops uh, feel good about what they do. Look, I, part of the problem in every walk of life is people make assumptions about why other people do their jobs and how they act. And the more you can show that they're human beings, I think, the better. And, you know, all the cops that I've known have done the job because they care about the people. But sometimes you need to make that more plain right? in ways that people can see. I, I know why I became a cop. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I've been a cop for 35 years. I'm certainly not a naive person. But I, I do know that uh, most people become cops because they want to make a difference. Yeah. And not all 36,000 cops are good. And all, I, wherever I go, I say that. We are going to have issues. We are going to have people that do things that uh, that are not right, that commit crimes. And we'll take care of that. You know? Yeah. Well, uh, look, I know. Uh, yeah, we, we'll I don't think we that. ever had cases like right. that. But I think during during my time in office, I think I think we prosecuted 20 cops yep. on different occasions for different things. Yeah. But you just you just take a look at, uh, in, the, in my old precinct, there was 200 and any depending on the time when I was there, it was either from anywhere from 250 to 300 cops there and see what they do every day and see how much they care about not only just each other, which is important, about how the people at the, out in the community and how quick they respond to crimes. Is there a difference between the way cops do their job if they're policing in the community in which they live or do you try not to have that happen? Is yeah, that a we, conflict? We don't, we don't, don't have allow that. police officers uh, assigned to precincts where they live. That would be, that would be problematic. It's too much. It, yeah, it'd be, it'd be, there'd be plenty of issues there. And you're talking about uh, if you're married, your spouse, you're talking about if you have children, your children. Safety issues. And yeah, there, there are some serious safety issues there. So many people don't trust cops. But, you know, people have known when I was in my prior job that I have a relationship with the NYPD and feel a certain way in kinship with law enforcement. But people felt comfortable telling me in a blanket way from time to time, you know, I hate cops. I don't trust any cops, which I thought was extraordinary if you're saying it to me. Why do you think that happens? I think we get painted with a broad brush. And again, we've had cops in New York City do some do some real bad things. We had two cops from Brooklyn South Narcotics get locked up for rape. And I think when people see that, they think that, uh, unfortunately, that all cops are like that. And they're certainly not. You look at what people watch on TV. What do people watch on TV? They watch shows about cops. I think there's a big conflict there. You know, in on one sense they're they're looking every day they're looking at cop shows and I'm sure there's some sense of admiration there, but that doesn't transform itself to, to reality. Right. On a cop show, I think there are twenty three shots fired in every program. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is the average in the whole year, right? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. So So what uh, do you so what do you do about it? Again, how much how much does it how much does it bother you? That, of course it bothers me. I mean uh I was the I became chief of department in November two thousand fourteen, right after the Ferguson decision, right after the Garner decision. You know, I lived through those protests. I was there uh, every day. Joe Lou and uh, Rafael Ramos were killed in December of two thousand and fourteen by uh, a mentally disturbed man. I'm not sure if it was directly related, but I'm sure it had something to do with it. So this is something that's on my mind constantly. And anything that we're trying to do in the NYPD now is is to build trust. And to let people know that they can trust an NYPD cop, that police officer is there for all the right reasons. How do you measure? How do you measure these things? Right, um, Comstat is very metric oriented. You know, how many shootings, how many solved cases, how many homicides, how many times have, has, have the firearms been discharged? But an important glue to all of this 
is, as you say, community trust. Are there metrics that you have that you can measure or yeah. feel? Yeah, yeah, there are. It's, it, it can't just be anecdotal. I mean, anecdotal is good, but it's, it's not going to really help us be where we want to be. We actually, we're uh, in the process now of, uh, it's in beta right now. It's in testing. It's called the sentiment meter. Uh, the sentiment meter? Sentiment meter. If you're in um, New York City, and this is down to the sector level, you might get a pop-up uh, question about New York City. And I think it's anywhere, it's up to 7,000. It's in 7,000 apps. It'll be an innocuous question about New York. And if you answer that question, there'll be four or five other questions about trust in the NYPD and whether or not you feel safe in your neighborhood. So that's it's one- like a poll. One, right, it's like a right. poll. It, it's, it's research. Yeah. So it's one way to measure. We can get that information out to the precinct commanders and they can see uh, down to the sector level if they have trust and, and safety issues throughout the city and, and there's different ways that we can make that better. Are you more worried about the lone wolf one-off people who will swerve their car into a crowd like we've seen in these other cities and in New York uh, or wield a knife on the subway somewhere or have a, you know, a single firearm and shoot people? Are you more worried about that these days than you are about some, you know, big organized high profile attack? Yeah. I mean, my, my degree of worry is, is probably consistent. I'm worried about all of those, but, uh, the, the lone wolf attack is it's, 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 it's really challenging. And there, uh, and there have yeah, been, you know, yeah. there have been more recent instances yeah, of smaller I mean, attacks that right. can be just as terrorizing. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, uh, the suicide bomber and, uh, the truck attack, those were, those are one-offs. We didn't know of those people, Saipoff or Ola, but we did know about people that were connected to them. So this is, it's a challenge because we were constantly monitoring the threat stream. All the threats that come over that threat stream are investigated by either the JTTF or the Intel Bureau, but it's got to be not just New York City centric. I mean, we have to take a look at uh, Rahimi was from Jersey. Yeah. Saipoff was from New Jersey and uh, JTTF in, in Jersey, they do a great job Maybe too. build a wall yeah. between New Jersey and New York. Uh, no need for that. <laughs> I was a joke. I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> I, went to high school we in, I went to high school in Jersey. Where'd, so, you, go to, where'd you go to high school? Uh, Montville Township High okay. School, Morris County. All the best people are from New Jersey. Let me ask you about another aspect of that, which is in the news and has been on people's minds for a long time. So you've got a guy, may or may not be disturbed, who gives off some signals that he's thinking about doing harm, you know, either becoming a school shooter or says he wants to wage jihad against Americans, but hasn't done anything, right? Hasn't directly threatened any particular person, but says some stuff. This happens all the time. We had cases like this and the NYPD, you say, you know, you, you chase them down. What do you do about a person like that if they haven't actually pulled the trigger anywhere, but they worry you? Explain to the public so that they both have confidence that people's rights are not being violated, but also have confidence that people are on the job. What do you do? Yeah. I mean, if we get a lead about someone and we do an investigation and then you have to stop if, the, if nothing comes to uh, pass, if there's nothing criminal, we have to constantly pay attention to, to the people that come up on our radar. And it's also, like you said, we have to make sure that we're not infringing on people's rights. Uh, and I but think you don't our, want 17 dead kids at a school. Uh, absolutely not. So, absolutely not. So we have to make sure that we don't alienate communities in New York City. We have to make sure that communities all across the five boroughs have trust in who we are and what we do. And if they see something, again, that doesn't look right, that they're comfortable enough to come to us and we can take a real hard look at the person or persons that they're talking about. It's hard. A lot of people 
Uh, we have a lot of resources, but we don't have unlimited resources either. Do you have people who are, who are monitoring social media for threats like that? Part of monitoring the threat stream is, of course, looking at social yeah. media. So maybe this is too difficult to hypothetical because it just happened, but if tomorrow you found out about a person, uh, you know, a 19-year-old graduate of a New York City public high school who was saying some nasty things on Instagram or on Facebook, do you go talk to the guy? Do you keep him under surveillance? Uh, is there an ability that you think you have to put cuffs on him for a period of time or not? That's the whole picture there. If we, if somebody makes us aware of a threat or if we become a, aware of a threat ourselves, of course, that uh, we're going to do an investigation there. Maybe that means that we're going to talk to that person. Maybe not. Maybe that means surveillance. Maybe it doesn't. I don't want to go too deep into what yeah, our yeah, tactics are. You know, if a threat like that comes to our attention, of course, we're going to, we're, we're going to take it seriously and make sure it's fully investigated. I want to go to the other end of the spectrum. Quali you know, not terrorism is the thing that we fear most. And we had the most traumatic event that any city has ever had in America uh, on 9-11. But at the other end of the spectrum, what you and others call quality of life crimes, where does that fall on the priority list? And why is that important so, to do? Yeah, again, this goes back to my, my experiences. At the 4-4? As a precinct commander, not just the 4-4. Quality of life is what people are believe it or not, mostly concerned about. I just went to the A3 Precinct Community Council uh, meeting. I go to community council meetings as, as often as I can. And every community council meeting that I've held, every tenant association meeting that I've gone to, every business uh, association meeting that I've gone to, people are concerned about quality of life issues. Uh, but what does that mean? That's, what's that's, an example? It could be noise, people smoking weed, it could be a block driveway. It could be any number of things. It's how things that affect people's everyday lives. And as a precinct commander, if you don't take care of quality of life issues, guess what? You're not going to be a precinct commander very long. One of the big changes we've made in Comstat over the last couple of years is there is quality of life enforcement. But sometimes when you're doing investigations, shooting homicide investigations, you have people that are, they might not be shooting anybody at this time, but they're committing a quality of life offense or violation. And I want most of our summary enforcement to be directed back against people who are directly involved in, in, in crime and violence. But the quality of life crimes or the quality, quality of life policing, is quality of life policing different from broken windows policing? Um, quality of life policing is, is something that the NYPD will never walk away from. It's evolved over the years, but it's important that we, that we stay connected to it. We've just had an issue over the last couple of weeks with a fair vision, which some people consider a quality of life, quality you mean, of life you mean, crime. You mean jumping turnstiles? Jumping turnstiles right. or, or not paying your fare once you get on the subway. And it's important that we continue to address that. My experience as a transit cop comes in handy here. You need to control the entry areas to the system. You need to control the turnstiles to make sure that people who are coming into the subway system are coming into the subway system to get to point A from point A to point B and not coming to commit crimes. So if I'm coming into the subway to, to commit a crime, chances are I'm not paying my fare. Well, that's how Bill Bratton began to. Right. That's right. right. That's uh, right. He, yep. he oversaw the transit police. Yep. Yep. Didn't a district attorney in New York City recently declare that they would no longer prosecute uh, fare beaters? Yeah, it was in it was in Manhattan. I think there was a. Uh, How do you feel about that? Probably uh, a miscommunication. <laughs> it's probably a, it's it's not it's not a blanket. Listen, we're always looking for ways to 
reduce online arrest, which means that somebody that's going to go through the system. Now, if I lock you up, I'll bring you to the station house. Uh, you get booked, you get fingerprinted, you get photographed, you can come down to central booking, and then you get arraigned. And then either you get released on your own recognizance or maybe pay bail or maybe you have to stay in. Uh, we're always to looking to reduce that number because it does. I'd rather have a police officer on the street. But there's also got to be a balance there. Most of the 75% of the people that beat the fair get a tab summons, a transit adjudication bureau summons, which is a civil summons. Uh, 25% of them get arrested for various reasons. But if I'm somebody that consistently beats the fair, if I'm somebody that consistently commits crimes down in the subway, I don't think it's it's right that, that uh, there's a decline to prosecute there. I think that person should be prosecuted. We're working with SI's office now uh, to determine- SI Vance, uh, the Manhattan yeah, Vance, attorney, We're, right. we're uh, working with them to uh, come up with a uh, determination of who uh, presents a public safety threat, and, and we'll get there. Do you worry that quality of life policing in some places means- that there's a disproportionate effect in terms of having, you know, a rap sheet in communities of color? Yeah, this is a discussion that, that we have all the time. When we're doing quality of life policing, uh, most of it's uh, driven by complaints, complaints from the community. And I think that's why it's important that uh, the police officers uh, are in steady sectors and they get to know the people in those sectors so they know who's involved in the crime you know, I don't want to be giving a summons to the guy uh, coming home from work and maybe he's got a, uh, he's sitting on his uh, stoop and having a can of beer. That's not the person I'm looking to, to give a uh, criminal court summons to. So if there's, a, uh, if there's a community that you have a block where they like to have, you know, late parties and the community's not complaining, you're not imposing your own NYPD, you know, the way things should be on them. No, if the community is, itself it, right, is complaining. Right. This, then you, this, then you is, the, this is the, a critical component of neighborhood policing. We have to listen to uh, people to figure out what the problems are and, and what the solutions are. Not to mean that, you know, you can have a late night block party unpermitted to, to three o'clock in the morning because, you know what, people are going to complain about that. People are going to complain. Have you noticed or have people in the department noticed in the current climate with respect to immigrants and particularly undocumented folks in New York City that there is a, a reluctance to come forward and report crime? We, we haven't seen that. Okay. And I think uh, I've taken a pretty strong stand. Um, you have. Yes. Well, Describe your stand. Tell, tell people what your stand it's, is. It's, it's consistent with city law. We do not conduct civil immigration enforcement. We do not ask people their, their immigration status uh, when we contact them. The, again, this, this goes back to trust. Everybody in New York City has to, has to trust us. If they're a victim of a crime, if they're a witness in a, in a crime, they have to, to feel that it's okay to come forward to us and let us do what we need to do to keep them safe. And it's important for people to important uh, to report crimes because this way we can deploy our people properly. How do you think this standoff between police commissioners like you who say that versus some folks in Washington, including the president and the attorney general, who say something different? They And I, I know they have. They need to take a look at, at what's going on in New York City and look at our levels of crime and uh, our levels of... Uh, community engagement, and I think uh, they really can't argue with what we're doing here. Do you think teachers should be armed in schools? Uh, teachers should teach. That's teachers a no. should that's teach. A no. That's a no. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't what think do that's What do you say to people idea. who think that's a good idea? Why do people think that that's a good idea? I mean, it, it has, look, it has some surface logic, right? You know, I saw recently the head of the NRA make an argument that I don't agree with, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. 
he literally went on television and said, you know, we protect our jewelry stores with armed people. We protect our politicians with armed people. We protect celebrities with armed people. Do we love our children less because we drop them off at school and they're not protected by anyone with a firearm? What do you say to someone like that? I think the way we protect our school children in New York City is excellent. We have 5,000, over 5,000 school safety officers. They're not, they are not armed, but they are at in all 1,800 schools. We have a school safety task force of, of uh, almost 200 people, uniform task force that we assign to various schools. And then we have in each and every precinct, we have the neighborhood coordination officers and the sector officers that have relationships with uh, people in the school. So I think uh, the way we're doing business here, it's, it's proven to be successful. You know, if you're going to carry a firearm, you need to have the proper training. Uh, you certainly do. You need to uh, be fully engaged, I guess. You know, if I'm a teacher, I want to concentrate on teaching somebody how to uh, read, how to uh, write, how to do math. I think uh, carrying a sidearm is definitely not the solution, so I, I wouldn't agree with that at all. Have you changed in a way that you can describe any of the ways in which schools are protected in, in the wake of recent mass shootings? Obviously, we're, we pay attention to it. We have made some changes. Uh, the precinct commanders are all very aware of what's transpired down in Florida. One of our missions is to protect the children in uh, the 1,800 schools in New York City. That's just public schools, not to mention the private and uh, other parochial schools. I just I do need to talk about one bill that's pending. Sure. Uh, if we're going to talk about uh, uh, firearms, is the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act. Cy Vance and I were on 60 Minutes a couple weeks ago, and we were both outspoken about it. Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act means that uh, New York State would have to recognize uh, somebody that has a concealed carry permit from another state. Uh, we'd have to recognize the fact that that's legal in New York State and the degrees to which people uh, get carry permits in different states vary. Uh, some of them good, some of them not so good. And we have some of the best gun laws in New York City, in New York State, and that's why our gun crime is so low. So I don't think it's uh, it would make us much less safe if this bill was to pass the Senate. It did pass the House, which I find hard to believe, and now it's uh, it needs sixty votes in the Senate. And I, I'm, we're not looking to tell other states how they should license people. We're just uh, if you come to this state, right? If you come to you this should, state, you should you need abide, to abide by, by yeah. our laws. To end, Commissioner, if there's one message you could give to the public about police and what they're about so that there's more trust, what would it be? That uh, police officers take this job uh, to make a difference and to do good. They're not in it for the money, that's for sure. Uh, they're not in it for a pat on the back for the appreciation. But uh, if you do have a chance uh, to, to say hello and to thank a cop, I think that's important. I think they might be a little surprised at first, but uh, I think it would definitely make their day. Commissioner O'Neill, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Preet. Pleasure to be here. So this is the part of the show where I talk about something that struck me in the last week. An hour before taping this morning, Wednesday, tens of thousands of school children from around the country walked out of school in an act of protest or commemoration of what happened in Parkland on Valentine's Day. Uh, my own children, I'm told, uh, have walked out of school as well. And so this issue of what to do about guns and what to do about school violence remains incredibly important. And as I've said on the show, I think it's extraordinary. Some of the voices that have been heard from, 
young people who went to MSD high school, and you've heard about them and you've seen them on TV. They're people like Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg and Cameron Caskey, and I think they should be appreciated and encouraged for getting involved, for raising their voice, whether you agree with them fully or not, whether every point they make is perfectly enunciated or not. They're doing a lot better job than a lot of politicians, I will tell you. But there's another person who also is a student at that high school who maybe you've heard about a little bit less. His name is Kyle Kashuf. Probably not been on as many shows that maybe people who listen to this podcast watch. He has a different point of view. He also is a survivor. He also had friends and teachers killed while he was in school. He has a view of how to deal with gun violence and school violence that's different from what some of the other people think. Kyle calls himself a Second Amendment conservative. He doesn't believe there should be absolute gun-free zones. And he believes that the NRA supports constitutional rights. He has had meetings with the President of the United States, Donald Trump, with Vice President Mike Pence, with Senator Orrin Hatch. But he has also had meetings with people like Chris Murphy, a Democrat, and Chuck Schumer, a Democrat. I mean, what's striking to me is when people like David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez began speaking, you would hear from adults, particularly in the legislature in Florida, attack them, belittle them, say they didn't know what they were talking about, we shouldn't listen to children, this is why children are not permitted to vote. I don't agree with that argument, but they were making it. And then all of a sudden along comes Kyle Kashuv, that some of these adults agree with, and all of a sudden it's okay to be a kid talking about these things because that kid agrees with your point of view. And my only point is, they should all be listened to, they should all be respected, and we should debate these things with facts and with evidence. I think respectful debate, even on issues that people care so strongly about, should be appreciated and should be emulated by some of our adults. So even though I don't agree with some of the prescriptions that Kyle is espousing, I respect him immensely in the same way I respect the other students who have a different point of view. And I think it would be better if we all listened a little bit more to some of these kids. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Police Commissioner Jimmy O'Neill. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara. Give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or send us an email. Stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake Maccabee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.